When something happens to your car, you might say, But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, Puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. One of the greatest challenges we have in this life is our battle with ego, other people's egos, and specifically our own Ego needs to be balanced. You need to have enough ego to believe that you can do something, but not big enough that it's out of control. Today's guest has a story that will take us down the road of ego going out of control and the aftermath of that destruction. Today on the show, we have writer-director Sasha Gervasi. He was in one of our past episodes with Bruce Dickinson, which I recommend everybody listen to about fear and how to break through it. Now, Sasha was a journalist until one life-changing assignment changed all of that. He was assigned an interview with Hervé Villachev, who many of you might remember as Tattoo from Fantasy Island. The story of his dinner with Hervé was turned into a major motion picture for HBO and chronicles that evening and the last few days of of, uh, Hervé's life uh, and how he basically gave him his life story right before his unfortunate death by suicide. It is a remarkable story of how ego, fame, money, power completely destroyed one soul's journey in this life. And Sasha goes also into some amazing stories about how he took this one little story that he written about Hervé and it took him all the way to working with one of the biggest directors of all time, Steven Spielberg, and launching his career. It is a remarkable story and Sasha is a amazing storyteller. So sit back and enjoy. I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Uh, I'm I'm excited to talk to you, my friend. We've we've talked a little bit off air already and it's uh, I wish we could have oh, yeah. recorded I we wish had we, stories that we, 
frankly cannot put on this podcast. Obviously, for, and for legal, for, legal, <laughs> for legal reasons. So I knew just from those few interactions we've had that this is going to be this is going to be fun uh, without question. Um, and you, so I wanted to ask you when we before we start the whole thing, how did you uh, get into this ridiculous business? <laughs> it's ridiculous. I got into it. Well, I was always fascinated with film. I, I went to a school in London called Westminster, and I started the film club at Westminster School in about 1980. And my what I would do is I would go with my housemaster, a guy called Tristan Jones Parry, who was literally a character out of Brideshead Revisited, a brilliant mathematician, completely ill-functioning socially, but really a wonderful man. We would he would accompany me to Soho, where we would pick up 16 millimeter prints of films. And so I remember bringing to all my classmates, I was 15 or 16 at the time, movies like Don't Look Now and Easy Rider. And so I loved film at school and, you know, kind of got into actually getting these 16 mil prints and putting them in the film club. So I think it was a very early dream, but I never thought I'd actually end up working in the film business <laughs> um, because I was for many years, you know, a really terrible musician. And I was <laughs> struggling with my own mediocrity for quite a few years, even though I ended up in some bands, you know, and, that actually did some stuff. But the reality was, I think the real dream was always film. Right. And so ultimately what happened was I was in the music business, got out of the music business. And then I decided I was offered an opportunity to work for uh, a very sort of famous British satirical magazine called Punch. Um, a fantastic guy there called Sean McCauley. I called him up. He was the features editor and pitched him a, a, an idea over the phone. I got through to him. His secretary was out to lunch and he gave me my first assignment and so I started as a journalist and I worked for, worked for Punk, Punch, Punch Magazine and um, Associated Newspapers, Evening Standard, Mail on Sunday. And I would do kind of profiles and interviews with what I thought to be interesting people. I remember in one week in 1993, I think it was, I interviewed um, Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols. Mm -hmm. the lead that must have been a hell of an that must have been a hell of an interview. <laughs> met in a, um, an Italian restaurant in Greek Street in Soho, and he ended up throwing a chair at me uh, because he didn't like, <laughs> he was promoting his book, No Black, No Irish, No Dogs, which was a great book, but he didn't like the sound of my voice and thought I was a tosser and decided literally to throw some kind of, you know, Art Deco chair in my general direction, which of course made it into the interview. Uh, but that same week I interviewed, um, you know, Ted Heath, the former British Conservative Prime Minister, you know, and many, many people along the way. And I just would meet all these fascinating characters. And journalism for me was just a, you know, an opportunity to try and make money writing, even though I wasn't really, you know, in, that wasn't really my end goal. But it was massively fun for me to fly around the world. And I remember my first foreign assignment, I was flown by Associated Newspapers to meet this young prodigy violinist called Sarah Chang in Florence. And I met her. And she was 11. And this most brilliant musician who we heard um, perform some ex exquisite, um, I think it was Vivaldi. I can't remember what, what she was doing at the time. But, you know, she had an entourage, her dad, her cousins, her mothers. There was like 40 adults in the room while I interviewed this 11-year-old <laughs> genius you know, so I had these incredible kind of experiences, just meeting very different types of people. And I think all of that ultimately, as you know, probably, um, if you know a bit of the story, is that, you know, one of the interviews that I was sent to, to do in the summer of 1993 was, was to interview Hervé Villachez, who, you know, had been the star of Fantasy Island. And 10, you know, 10 years after he'd been fired by Aaron Spelling was in quite a bad condition. And I was sort of sent to this interview kind of as a joke you know, while I was waiting for, frankly, something more important. The Gore Vidal interview, as it appears in, in the film. 
And ultimately, that experience changed my life um, and, and led to screenwriting. And I know that sounds very strange, but I was sent um, from London to L.A. to do a series of Im- important show business interviews, as if that really exists as a concept in reality. <laughs> uh, and Herbie Villachez was the kind of the throwaway joke piece, you know. And they said to me, you know, get 500 words with the midget, you know, where are they now? Well, that, so, so that's your, when because I didn't know it's that's tattoo, right? Tattoo. Tattoo, yeah. 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 Been knickknack in the Bond film, the man with the gun. Sort of a seminal kind of famous kind of cult figure in the 1970s, and frankly, the most uh, famous little person and successful little person actor that that had been at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, I went in there filled with judgment and cynicism, and you know, fuck, I've got to get through. I've got this is this is the dregs of the celebrity. I've been given like you know, the formerly famous dwarf from Fantasy Island. The one-hit right? wonder, the one-hit wonder almost, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I was like, wow, this is really where my career is. You know, I'm interviewing Tattoo. I wanted to shoot myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I won't say it. I, anyway, I was going to say something terrible. Um, yeah. But anyway, so we, had, we, we we went to meet at Le Petit Chateau in uh, West Hollywood. Um, and I was with this photographer who was sent from the newspaper with me. And his, his name was Sloan Pringle. I mean, you can't make this up. You can't make this up. You can't make that up. Not a stage name, Sloan Pringle. (laughs) And, um, you know, Sloan was like, look, we've got to get to this other place. We have half an hour. Just get your interview in. So, you know, I just went through, what was it like? Fantasy Island, the man with the golden, the stories. And I literally was packing my shit to go away. Right. Um, to say, you know, thank you, Herve. It's been wonderful. Great stories about Fantasy Island. You know, it was all the the ludicrous kind of showbizy stuff we knew. And I was putting my stuff and I turned back and Hervé had come off his chair and around the corner and was holding a knife at my throat. And I was like, I am about to be shivved to death by, by the tattoo. By, by, by tattoo. By tattoo is about to kill me. And I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. And he wanted to get my attention. He was like, he literally said to me, you wrote the story before you got here. You prejudged me. You have no idea who I really am. You just see me as a joke, you know, on this show. And I'm just like a sort of Sunset Boulevard kind of sad past celebrity. And he was right. He was absolutely right. He wasn't really threatening me with my life. He just wanted to puncture kind of this bubble of judgment and cynicism and disinterest that I kind of clearly walked in with. And he said, if you want to hear the real story of my life, come meet me tomorrow night. So I was so shocked. I was like, (laughs) You know, because my editors had said, look, 500 words, three paragraphs, you know, where are they now? They didn't really. But I, there was something about him that was so fucking compelling, so human and broken and but also interesting. I mean, he was such a charismatic person that I decided to meet him and I ended up spending three days with him. And he told me his life story with such kind of emotional intensity and need. And, you know, as, as I'm sure any other journalist will tell you, when someone tells you the story of their lives, they become mm-hmm. quite emotional because how often do you tell all the major emotional events of your life to, to, right. to and, and bad journalists take advantage of it. I actually found him so different to how I imagined him to be. To me, the whole thing was like a lesson about judgment and prejudgment because I really did just see him as being defined by his size. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? 
Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. And now back to the show. And being defined by these kind of quote unquote, you know, jokey roles. By the end of the three days, I was so compelled. I went to see him at the, um, the Universal Sheraton where he was staying. And I remember having this really weird feeling, and it's actually recreated in the film My Dinner with Hervé. Uh, and we shot the final scene where the actual event had taken place in the same lobby of the Universal Sheraton 25 years after it had happened. It was just a very weird thing. Oh, watching the Dinklage recreate this scene with, you know, that I'd had with Hervé in the same place. And... Um, you know, I went up to his room and he had all his fan mail laid out and it was just so sad. You know, it was like he, he said they still write to me. And, you know, I just felt I felt for him, man. I just, yeah. you know, I really connected with him. I felt here's this guy who's been basically totally destroyed by the, the, the cruel fate of, you know, his biology and was totally rejected by his mother and became famous. And of course, none of it really worked, you know, it worked for a time, but it, you know, and, and then of course he lost his mind, blew up his career and was just, but also underneath it was really just a painter. You know, he was really a very talented artist who'd won prizes and gone to, um, you know, some very famous art schools in Paris. And he was the youngest painter, for example, to be exhibited in the museum of, of Paris. And he was just an extraordinary character. And I really connected with him at the end. And so I remember going back and he had all these photos of his life and he says, you take these for your article. He looked like 2000 slides of his whole life. And I'm like thinking to myself, my editors want like maybe one photo and you know, like, what am I going to do? But I felt like I had to take it. And we went down in the elevator together and then he sort of tugged me on my sleeve and he pulled me into very close to him. And he said, he had tears in his eyes and he said, tell them I regret nothing. And I just had this like weird feeling what the fuck is going on? There's, I just knew something was going on. I didn't right. quite know what it was, but it was just so, it like sent a shiver up my spine. And I just had this connection with this weirdo that you would never think, I would never, why would I connect with this guy? You know, it just, right. we had nothing in common and yet we had everything in common. I just was newly sober. He was clearly struggling, you know, during our three days together, he tried, you know, I told him that I was stopped drinking and he was like constantly trying to get me to drink and <laughs> take him to strip clubs. I mean, it was like... <laughs> He was like the devil and an angel. He was just like just the most complicated, interesting, charismatic and unusual person I think I'd ever met in my life, probably to this day. And um, I ended up having this bond. And anyway, so I go home to London and I've got basically 14 hours or 12 hours of these little micro, micro cassettes that you used to have, you know, mm -hmm. where you record it. I remember listening back to this thing going, how the fuck am I going to put this in an article to take to my editors, like, you know, <laughs> I'm really interested to begin with. And then I come back with this. Anyway, so I get a call from Kathy Self, who was his girlfriend, who I'd met during the sort of three-day interview. And Kathy called me at home. It was a Sunday. It was like 6.15 in the evening. Um, Sunday, September the 4th, 1993. I'll never forget it. It was a really pleasant early after late afternoon evening. And the phone rings. It's Kathy. And Kathy says, Herve committed suicide four and a oh. half hours and I know you will have wanted to let you know that that happened. And just to let you know, Hervé really connected with you and is so happy that you have this interview. Oh, my God. So I'm like listening back to these tapes now. And suddenly I have a whole new perspective. And the perspective is this guy knows that he's going to kill himself. 
this this is like some random you know english journalist some young kid who knows nothing has been sent to interview me i'm just going to grab him and i'm going to give him the whole story about the family about everything and it really like was like you know what do i do with this i started crying when i listened to the interview again because i understood that he was absolutely conscious of the fact that he was telling someone his story for the very last time and he was clearly planning to do this I, I decided to change my whole perspective on the article and come at it from a point of view of here I was walking in this judgmental, cynical British journalist who knows nothing. And I was just completely captivated by this extraordinary character. And he opened his heart to me. And then, you know, six, five days after we see each other, he kills himself. And so the whole article was about, so I do a 5,000 word piece and I take it into my editors at the paper and they were like, this is great, but... This is not what we asked for. We wanted you to go a, do a stupid, funny story. And I was like, but this is the truth. I mean, this is this right. story is important. And luckily, I'd already spoken to someone else who I thought would take the story. And they agreed, okay, we'll take the story uh, and publish it the way you wanted to do it. And I went to my newspaper. I said, you've got to give me front cover and I need, you know, six pages, whatever it is, lots of photos. Here they are, you know, the whole thing. And so I had this extraordinary thing where they basically said, no, we sent you out there. We own the story. You're going to rewrite it. And it was really tough. And I just couldn't really do it at a certain point. And uh, in the end, someone else rewrote the story. It was, I think, four pages or two pages somewhere in the middle of the magazine. And I really felt horrible because here yeah. I've had incredibly important personal experience completely out of the blue with this person. I was essentially his suicide note. And here were these guys who were just didn't give a shit. They were just didn't like, get it. for me, summed up everything about British journalism and, that, and those newsrooms at the time. And the editor literally came out of the room and said, well, Javazi's topped a midget, which means made a midget commit suicide. Where do we send him next? And everyone's laughing. And I'm like, wait, hold on a second. Like, this guy is a human being and you guys are just, you're pigs, you know, mm -hmm. and they're all bitter and they're all just, you know, judgmental and they're not, you know, none of them, they probably wanted to be writers or painters or filmmakers and none of them really were willing to take that risk. And so it's much easier to sit on the sidelines and judge than actually take a risk, you know, and mm -hmm. do something. And so I just got, that was where the idea for the film was born. And so I'd never written a script before and it leads into my very first script. I wrote a short script, a 32 page screenplay, I've never written one before, called My Dinner with Hervé. And I thought, this is great. It's a short about the most famous short man in the world. You know, what I didn't understand is that I'd written essentially an unmakeable $2 million short film that once someone looked at it, they were like, Paris in 1940 and Barbados in San Paolo. Like, who's paying for this? And I was like, yeah, no one's paying. Anyway, um, it became an interesting thing because I wrote this script from the heart to feel like, I felt like the newspaper robbed me of the truth of that story. And so the script was my first attempt to tell the story from a truthful point of view. And um, I, I, it ended up being read by Steven Spielberg. I mean, that script that I was, you know, got to Spielberg. You, you know, mean, uh, I'm sorry, I was, I was, the 32-page, $2 million yeah. short film about my dinner with Herb, unmakeable. With Unmakeable. Called my di my my dinner with uh, with Hervé about the yeah. most famous short man in the world. That script, how yeah. did that thirty two page script? Well, that's another story. You see, as as <laughs> what happened? happened? Well, 
So, okay, here's the story. This is a crazy story. So I had applied to UCLA Film School, and sure. I was really on, on the fence about whether I wanted to go. And I got, for whatever reason, I got I applied to UCLA. So I was in L.A. doing all these interviews, Hervé and the kids from Beverly Hills 90210. By the way, on the mm-hmm. same trip that I interviewed Hervé, you know, when he pulled the knife on me, yeah. the interview I was going to was the kids of Beverly Hills 90210. That's who I also interviewed. So mm-hmm. I'm like... <laughs> All, I'm sitting there listening to these imbeciles talking about this terrible show. And all I'm thinking is about Tattoo shiving me and what was going to happen next. And I'm like, I was so disinterested. Um, I was a 24-year-old. Anyway, so I, it was just so weird. Anyway, so I was, I was basically um, – I, I applied to UCLA because I was in L.A. so much. And I'd, I went back to the original dream. You know, I was, at, I was at school and I started my film club and I loved film. And, you know, I really wanted to see, if, you know, UCLA was a legendary school, you know, that so many fantastic filmmakers. And I was a huge, I am a huge Paul Schrader fan. Mm-hmm. And Paul Schrader had been at UCLA and Alex Coppola and just an extraordinary and, and USC seemed to be like the you know really successful rich kids and UCLA was the kind of you know messy disaster kids it felt like anyway it was much cheaper I couldn't yeah. afford it. so I just applied to UCLA and I got into UCLA and so I was in LA my mom said go to LA I knew not a single person not one person and so my mom had an old friend um called Ruthie uh, Snyder, who she grew up with in Toronto. My mother came from Toronto and then had moved to New York, whatever, and then to England. And um, she said, look up my old school friend. You know, she hadn't seen her in like 30 years. I was like, great, I'm all hooked up in LA. I have some woman I don't even know. Anyway, so she was very kindly introduced me to her daughter, Fonda, Fonda Snyder. And what happened was I got invited. She said Fonda was running a company called Storyopolis, which was a bookstore in in, in L.A., opposite mm-hmm. the Ivy Restaurant on Robertson. Mm-hmm. And Paul Allen, the, you know, the Microsoft guy, was funding this kind of children's bookstore. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And so she said, oh, we're doing a dinner. Do you want to come? I didn't know her at all. Anyway, so I go to this dinner. And I, and I get there early because, you know, I don't know anyone at all. I'm like, you know, I'm talking to the waiters. What, like, year are we, what, what year are we talking? It's like 93, 2 in there. 92, 3, 4, 4 94 even, right? Something like that. Yeah. And anyway, so I'm in my suit like because I'm very English. I'll put on a suit. They right. can't fool me, whatever. So I go there and I look at there's these long tables and they're having a dinner to honor the incredible author Maurice Sendak who did mm-hmm. Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah. So and I'm looking at this table and I'm looking at David Geffen, Peter Guber, you know, but like the people coming to this dinner were it's... like, and so Fonda was like laughing because she, she thought I was going to some kind of, you know, like free festival. Mix, some but mixer. I, I, yeah. what I, was, I don't know what I was talking about. So she thought it was very funny. So anyway, so I see all these kind of luminaries. Oliver Stone was at the dinner, I think. And, you know, unbelievable. So I'm nervous as hell. Because should I don't, be. I'm no one. I have no idea. I'm smoking red Marlboros, like, without stopping. I've smoked two packs. Anyway. So I go outside and I'm watching all these Hollywood luminaries through the windows. If you know where, where New Line used to be opposite the Ivy, Storyopolis was all glass and they had this kind of little area, piazza area with benches. So I'm sitting on the piazza benches watching through the windows as like Oliver Stone and David Geffen and all these people arrive going, what am I doing here? I, can't, I'm, I was thinking about going. Anyway, so this 
tramp comes up to me who was like wearing some sort of that kind of grungy Seattle look or whatever. And he was sort of a bit befuddled and he sits down and he says, you know, do you have a cigarette? I was like, sure. So I ended up chatting with him and we started talking and smoking cigarettes. And he was a very nice guy. And he said, you know, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm English. I'm actually here. I think I'm going to go to film school. And, you know, and he says, really, what, what, what are your plans? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to become a screenwriter. You know, I, I'm going to be a screenwriter like that. And he looks at me and goes, huh. And I literally remember thinking, I looked at him and thought, maybe I can help this guy. Maybe I can just give him, I don't know, some money for the bus or something. I don't mind. I'll help. He seems nice. So anyway, so we're chatting. We're getting on incredibly well and talking about, you know, America versus England and the favorite yeah. TV shows. And I can't remember, but it was great conversation. Mm-hmm. And we're big cigarette smokers. Anyway, so. I'm watching the assembled mass through the windows. We both are. And this very beautiful woman comes out and goes up to this tramp. I thought perhaps to give him money. I didn't really know. But she comes up to him and it turns out it's her husband. And she is coming to this event. And by the way, he is coming to this event. And I'm like, okay, they're letting the homeless in. It's like (laughs) open community. I mean, we've got the luminaries, but we're also, we're working with the streets. So So I was basically... Just like, okay, so who's, the, anyway, whatever. So she says, who are you? And I said, well, I'm Sasha Javazi. I come from London. I'm going to UCLA. I'm going to be a screenwriter. And Elizabeth says, oh, really? That's what my husband does, the tramp. And I'm like, oh, okay. So so who are you? Oh, he, he's called Steve Zalian. He had lit oh my God. the Oscar the previous year for his screenplay for Schindler's List. So I could not speak. Oh, my I God. I have literally met one of the greatest living screenwriters yeah ever forget it right now then doesn't matter unbelievable and so anyway we go into the dinner i'm like freaking out elizabeth finds it very funny because i'm like you're steve zanian okay you're elizabeth zanian okay great so then (laughs) i find out that i'm seated like three seats away from him my card you know uh, next to the head of new life you know (laughs) sees me freaking out and he finds it hilarious. Was he's, this? He's, Steve? Steve just yeah. found it funny as well. So they're all like laughing at me. And anyway, so I couldn't speak after that because I felt like I behaved like such a dickhead. Like there I am proclaiming I'm a screenwriter. And there I am next to the Academy Award winning writer. Of so the equivalent of me, of, 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 of a kid going to Steven Spielberg, you know, one day I'm going to be a, a director. <laughs> Not knowing that that was Steve Spielberg. I felt like so, I went into a massive shame spiral. And I remember just eating all the food and picking out on dessert. I was trying to eat on my feelings. It was so, I was so nervous. I felt terrible. I felt like an imposter. And I felt like I'd really made a fool of myself in front of, essentially, I'd never seen him, but I'd read all his screenplays. I'd read Searching for Bobby Fischer. I'd read his uh, Awakening script. You know, uh, the guy uh, was extraordinary. I'd, I'd uh, you know, I'd, uh, there was so, you know, Serpentine. Another script of, I mean, of, of, of bad manners, whatever these things were, you know, he was just an extraordinary him and Bob Town to me with the guys, right? <laughs> so I'm like meeting him, made a total fool of him. Anyway, at the end of the dinner, he comes over to me and he said, here's my phone number. If you want to have a coffee, let's have a coffee or whatever. How many, really, how, 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 how many days are you in LA at this point once you I've, arrived? I haven't been there that long, like three weeks. <laughs> I've arrived in LA. I know my mother's friend from high school in Toronto and oh I'm meeting God. literally. So anyway, oh so my God. now I had written that my dinner with Herbe script, right? But I didn't know what I was doing, but I had this script 
So he said, do you have anything, you know, that I could read? And I said, um, I have this script. And I told him the story of meeting Herbie, and he found that story very interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so I ended up sending him the script to where, to where, to where he lived in Santa Monica. I sent him the script, um, and I didn't hear anything. As you know, yeah. And I was like, okay, I've met Mick Jagger, I've given him my demo tape, and I'm a loser. <laughs> and I made a fool of myself. And I offered basically to give him bus money home. I mean, it's just like a full-on disaster from start to finish. <laughs> anyway, so I was in my little $100 a week apartment that I was living in West Hollywood, and the phone goes, and this is like three months later. It's Steve's Alien. I'm so sorry for not getting back to you. I've been on a project that's finished now. I just happened to get to your script. And I think it's really good. Would you like to have coffee? I drive down to Diedrichs in Santa Monica. In fact, my friend Adam dropped me off because I didn't have a car. Because remember, for, well, for the first two, three years in LA, I did not have a car. I was traveling by bus or walking, which was fine, right? Oh, so I was yeah. going to, I got dropped off at Diedrichs. I had a coffee with Steve. And he said, I think this is special. I think you're a writer. I think you're right to go to UCLA. And I think this is a very important and special piece of work. And I was just like, Jesus, I've never written anything. This was the first thing I wrote. In, and, and so in the end, without getting into it, because there's lots more, obviously, to chat about, he gave that script to Steven Spielberg. And so okay. I found myself on the set of Armistad, you know, 10 feet away from Anthony Hopkins, you know, right on the, on the set with, with, with Steve introduced, because Steve was also working on that, had rewritten that whole thing, was introducing me to Steve. Steven Spielberg. And I just couldn't believe it. And he complimented me on the script and said, would you like to watch? And was, could not have been nicer. And ultimately that ended up, that led to me working with Steven on the terminal. So it was all through Steve's alien. Like literally, had I not had that chance meeting with Steve, had Steve not been as cool and generous and so unpretentious and kind with me, he was just extraordinary with me, extraordinary. Like, you know, in life when you get people who suddenly appear in a certain moment and they're yeah. like angels, that's yes. exactly what his alien was for me. He was absolutely an angel. I would not, like everything that's happened since that moment, I would have absolutely no career without Steve and his belief in me. And, and at times when it was really, really tough. You know, and so, I actually, yeah, anyway. So, all right, so you basically had, and I've talked about this a lot, is because, I mean, so many screenwriters listening tonight and filmmakers as well who are listening, you you, you look up to people like, you know, Steve Zalian and, and, and Spielberg, and, and I, I, cons I consider them to be gods on Mount Hollywood. They're literally like Greek gods in Mount Hollywood. And when one of them decides to come down with the peasants and touches you on the shoulder and is like, you now shall be a screenwriter. You now shall be a director. That literally happened to you, and and he was and he wasn't even. And the funny thing is, if I if I may go full Greek mythology on you, he was like hidden. <laughs> so you, yeah, he was like in that. disguise almost. Thank God, because I was totally myself. I had right. no idea who he was. I didn't. I was giving this guy cigarettes and possibly giving him bus money home, and possibly when I became a screenwriter, helping him when I discovered he too was a screenwriter. You know? Oh my God, no. It was like magic because had I known, look, I'm very like, had I known it was Steve's alien, I would have probably completely clammed up and of not course. been who I am. And so therefore it was a massive gift. It was like such a weird and wonderful thing. 
And, you know, he and his family and Elizabeth and, and Nick and Charlie would just have been fantastic. Well, I have to, I have, yeah. so I have to ask you because, I mean, and I've spoken to other people on my show as well that have had these kind of magical paths. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because this is a this is absolutely lottery ticket. This is magical, uh, in so so many ways. Do you believe in 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 there has to be some sort of fate in this? Because the chances of this happening, do you uh-huh. believe there are other things that that kind of guide? Because I do, I truly do. Like when doors are supposed to open for you, they open for you in a magical way that you just can't understand. You know how yeah. I, how I get how I have had the opportunities to talk to certain people on my show, like yourself, and like what's happened to my show, what's happened to my career, all these other different things. When something's supposed to happen, it happens in a way that you will never know. Like. If I would have told you this exact story when you were flying over to LA to, to go to UCLA, you would have said, you're, you're mad. You're mad. If I would have told you that tattoo was going to be the catalyst for your yes. entire career, you would have said, that's right. You're insane. So and what, also, what do you, so what do you, what's your feelings on that? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Also, with him threatening me with a knife. Obviously, I mean that's 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 a given. I mean, but the whole <laughs> the whole thing. I do well. How can you ignore that? I mean, there's obviously something going on. I'm not saying that goes on for everyone all the time. No. It doesn't go on for me all the time. But I think there are certain critical moments in life when things happen, when you meet someone, and I think it's all about being open and recognizing it because you know a lot of the time you don't recognize things. Yeah. So. Oh, but I got very lucky because, you know, without getting too much into my personal story, I had a really, you know, a pretty bad time with drugs when I was younger and I, you know, nearly was not here. Mm-hmm. And I think when I got out of that, and was able to figure out, like, actually, I don't really want to, I actually do want to be here. And here, are the, and I, when I sort of got clear of that, um, I just saw everything in a strange way as a, as a, as a huge blessing because it's like, you know, Whenever things would be going badly, you know, I would say to myself, you know, for a dead man, you're not doing that badly. <laughs> you know, I'm alive. I may, and I definitely have that appreciation of life at a very basic level. I don't take stuff for granted. And so I think when you carry that energy, perhaps you invite sometimes positive, perhaps even negative, but, but in this case, a very positive things. You know, I, I was recently kind of, um, you know, in recovery, clean and sober, when I came to LA, like coming to LA was all about a completely new beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think when you've been through a tough time, and I'm sure many of your viewers and listeners have been through their own version of that, you know, you know, that there's something about getting through it where you just, you want to live. Yes. (laughs) And that brings stuff to you. And I think that that maybe that was an example of that. I don't really know. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was just you know, I think when I nearly, you know, when I nearly was not here, it's very humbling. Oh, I think that, you know, like, I think the problem is I see a lot of Hollywood, you know, screenwriters sell their first script for a ton of money and then it all goes to their head, you know, and, and I had that later, I actually have to say, I had to call myself on that, you know, because it does affect you, right? When people start telling you all the shit and you have to really watch it. And, um, 
I would say as a writer, as a writer, particularly in Hollywood, you know, if you don't seek humility, it will find you. <laughs> it will find you. Amen, brother. Amen. You will be fired. You will be, you know, taken down and denigrated and all that stuff. And so, you know, and actually Steve Zane gave me a great bit of advice. He said, it's a roller coaster. When it when the corner gets squeaky, squeeze on tight. Just hold on. You know, and I think that. I've always done that. There have been some terrible, terrible moments as well as some extraordinary moments. And I think that, um, you know, it is about not being a wanker. <laughs> if you can. I'm, being, I'm being, you know, when people, when people like that, like I think what happens is you get these moments of grace and clearly that was some kind of a miracle with Steve. You know, it's when the ego cuts in and it starts taking credit for all that shit, you get into a lot of trouble. So you have to just mm. count your blessings and go, thank you rather than start making it about you. And that is something that, you know, we're all prone to at different times. But you've got to watch for that. And I've, I've certainly, if I haven't been watching for it, I've learned the lesson the hard way. I, I mean, the ego is the, I mean, listen, the ego is one of the, the the thing that we all fight every single day. And I believe in the in the film industry more so than ever because, man, it is so, it, it is it's so I mean, enticing. Like, oh, a screenwriter having an ego is kind of like, you know, that knight in the Monty Python <laughs> who gets his arm knocked off and then his leg. It's just a flesh so, wound. It's merely a flesh wound and then it's like a quivering stump. You know, that's like a, a screenwriter with an ego. Come here, come here, I'll take you. <laughs> it's like, you know, you better not, you know, it's just a waste of your energy. You just better get real and take your breaks when you get them and and pass it on. That's the key thing. Yes. People come into your path and you feel, even if you can make it like a tiny difference, you know, you know, don't delude yourself into thinking you can do what someone like Steve Zanian or Steven Spielberg could do. But if you can actually help someone, even if it's reading a script or listening or whatever, you know, do it, man, because you got given that times 10. And I think it's in a strange way, it's, it's your duty to do that. It's the pay forward. It's that's the pay what forward. was done for you. You know, so uh, that's, I just think if you're coming from basically a place of, honesty and fairness and trying not to be a tosser, trying not to be and catching yourself when you are, then, you know, you're going to be all right. You're going to go, you're going to survive the crazy turns of the roller coaster and the ups and downs and the rapids in the river. And there will be plenty as I'm sure, you know, most of your, you know, writers know it's just very, you know, and you can go from the hottest thing to the coldest and the hot, you know, and it's like, try not to pay attention to the temperature reading, focus on the process and the long-term plan because, you know, Today's hottest screenwriter is tomorrow's coldest. I've, I've got, I've got the best reviews and the very worst. You know, it's like you'll have all of it. Try not to get buy into it too much. I think just focus on. Okay, I've got to deliver this script and I've got to deliver this movie or whatever. Stay in what at, you do, you know, and don't worry and, about the other bullshit. And look at Hervé. I mean, look, I mean, he was the hottest, biggest thing. Totally. In, in yeah. I mean, in the seventies, you couldn't. You just couldn't. He was everywhere. I mean, he was he he was so hot. And look where he and, and, and ends the, up. That was the lesson of the Hervé story. And yeah. it all went to his head. And he got into it with Ricardo Montalban. And he wanted a trailer as big. And and basically, spelling fired him because he was completely out of you know out of control. And you know he he was destroyed. He went from you know a, a TV star on an ABC show getting thirty or forty thousand dollars a week in 1979, 80, 81. Jesus right? Christ, yeah. Um, to you know, when I found him having to flush his toilet by taking water out of his swimming pool to flush the toilet because the water had been cut off. You know, it was really extreme. So, yeah, he was a kind of example to me, you know, and I also felt for him because there was clearly he'd realized that he'd kind of 
completely fucked himself, you know. Jesus. And his ego, you know, his ego was not his amigo, as they say. You know, it, <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> it blew everything up. So anyway, yeah, I mean, there are there are so many examples of that, you know, of um, just don't take the work seriously. Just don't take yourself too seriously. Now, so let me ask. All right, so you're working with Steve and Steve, the Steves, um, on on Terminal. Um, what is that like? Did Steve bring you in? I think he. It, it almost sounds like he Donnie Brasco'd you. He's like he's a good fella. He can come in with me. So he kind of like vouched for you. You walked in, and Steve's like, "I want to work with you on the Terminal." Is how did that? How did you? First of all, how do you collaborate with? Well, it was Walter Parks really who I work with mostly. Walter okay. Parks, who was then running DreamWorks, also a brilliant producer who we developed the script together. And then initially what happened was that um, Tom, Tom Hanks came into it. I'm just thinking my first meeting with Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks said he would like to do the script. And then I went to meet him at his office in Santa Monica and it was it was unbelievable. It was hilarious. Well, what and, happened? Uh, what, what, what happened when you met Tom just, Hanks? Just, I can't remember. I think I had, I said, I've got to do something really notable. I'll come up with a joke. So I think I came into his office and Walter Park said, and here's Tom Hanks. And I looked at Tom and I looked at Walter and I said, but you said Tom Hulse. <laughs> and, like, and then he laughed his head off and then we became friends. Oh my so God. We, oh my God. That's, ama- that's so I, amazing. I want a notable entry. Um, and it was hilarious. So we ended up having a good time and I ended up being high. So anyway, so he came on to Terminal. He wanted to do it. And then originally actually Sam Mendes was going to direct the film. And I met with Sam and Sam was like, don't change a word of the script. Um, and then it sort of all went quiet and it was really weird. I was on a research trip with Tom Hanks in Europe and we were working on this other project that unfortunately never got made. It was called Comrade Rockstar. It was a great project and Tom was very into it at the time. And so we flew, um, on, on the DreamWorks jet, which was also another. Of course. Why wouldn't you? (laughs) I went with Tom and Walter and we went to, uh, we went to Berlin to do research and meet various people to do with the Comrade Rockstar story. And we were staying at the Adlon Hotel in Berlin. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And, you know, at this point, I didn't know what was happening with Terminal. I knew Tom was interested in it. I knew we were developing this other thing. And so Tom was on the Catch Me If You Can, you know, press junket tour. And I remember I got a call, um, Tom's driver or whatever called and said, you know, that there's a car downstairs, you know, go and have dinner with Tom, right? So I got into the car and I go into this restaurant in Berlin, which I think was called Von or Vau, I can't remember. It was this big room with a, like a gallery and like a main floor. And there was this table of like 20 people. And there was an empty chair at the end and there was Walter Parks, Leonardo DiCaprio, Ethan Suppley, you know, Tom Hanks or whatever. And then there was a guy not facing me just that I anyway so I walked in and Tom was with Stephen and Tom said Sasha you know Stephen Sasha's here and Steven Spielberg turned around to me and he said congratulations we shoot November the 5th and I was like what what are we what what are we what's what are we shooting what are we shooting (laughs) his moment where he said I'm I'm gonna direct the terminal and I just was like they were all again. They were all laughing at me because I was just like so. I, I feel that I hear a theme here. That when I, I hear a theme here, Sasha, that when when these giants, when the gods, when the gods get together, and they see the and they see the the commoners walking among us, they they like to poke fun at them. Essentially, is what I hear. 
Well, it was the same thing with with, with, with Tom Hanks. It was the sweetest of all of the people. Right, right. All the so, in fact, when Tom Hanks told me he was going to attach himself to the script, mm-hmm. he said, I was at his office, he said, will you drive me home? I said, sure. I didn't really know. I thought maybe he couldn't afford Uber. I didn't really understand. Yeah, don't give him, don't give him, no, don't give him change for the bus like you were going to do, Steve. <laughs> so I gave some bus tickets to Zalian, and then I thought, I'll help him with some vouchers. <laughs> anyway, so I'm driving. <laughs> so, oh Tom, God. this is a true story. So the... Mirror stories that is, I'm driving with Tom, he's in the passenger seat. I'm driving my, you know, very excited. I've sold my first script and I've, of course, got a Cadillac because I'm an idiot. I'm <laughs> finding that amusing. I, he said, Why did you, you're from Britain? Why did you lease a Cadillac? And I said, Because I'm from Britain, you know. And so, anyway, <laughs> I'm driving along and he says, um, I'm just going to hold the steering wheel for just a minute. And I said, Sure, do you? Okay. So he holds the wheel and he turns to me and he says, I'm going to star in Terminal. And I was like, because <laughs> he knew I was going to have a moment. And oh so he God. held the wheel. So Tom did that. And then we had the, 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 when Steven Spielberg told me he was directing the film in Berlin. So it was quite, you know, you want to understand, this is my second movie. So I've done a small hairdressing comedy called The Big Tease at Warner Brothers that no one saw, which we made for four million. And then, you know, suddenly I'm doing a Spielberg Hanks movie, number right. two. Right. So it was like complete madness. Sasha's story with Hervé is remarkable and is an example of, you know, Hervé is an example of somebody who had everything. He was easily one of the most famous human beings on the planet at that time and how it literally destroyed him. And I'm so glad that Sasha was able to tell that story, Hervé's story in my dinner with Hervé. Now, if you want to go into a deep dive into Sasha and also watch My Dinner with Hervé, which is available on HBO Max as we speak, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 007. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review on whatever platform you are listening on. It really helps the show out a lot. And remember to trust the journey. It is there to teach you. I'll see you next time.